night, about midnight. Snap, crackle, pop of the neighborhood. A few shouts. I heard it. I was just starting to fall asleep coming home after the evening service, and I was awakened for about a half an hour by various noises. Some, uh, you know, hoops and hollers, and I knew there were parties going on. I knew that people were out there trying to drown their sorrows in what they call celebrating, drinking to take the sting off of life. Reality has a tendency to sting. And in comparison to that, you've come here this morning, the first day of the new year. It's the best place to be on New Year, just like it was the best place to be on Christmas, to come and worship and to set the true meaning of <clears throat> the new year before the Lord and to make a public demonstration that we're giving Him our year. As you notice, we have a communion table set up. And that's in marked contrast to the revelry the world had last night that are trying to sleep off this morning. And that is that the world drinks to forget we drink to remember. Jesus said to take these elements and to drink of the fruit of the vine and to do it in remembrance of Him. <clears throat> this morning, first day of 1995, hard to believe. 1995, five years will be the close of a millennium, beginning of a new one. And this morning, sort of, we look backwards, and that's what Paul does in Philippians 3, and then with that look backwards, he looks forward to something that is ahead of him. Behind us this morning is a whole year. We did this last year. And some of us remember having a New Year's service last year. A whole year's gone. It's over. You can't change it. You can't get it back. You might have certain regrets. But all you can do is learn from your past. You can't relive it. And I would hope that your past becomes, instead of an anchor or a weight, becomes a wing to move you forward. Because ahead of us is another new year, God willing. Maybe a few of us have a few weeks of the year or a few months, or some of us will live through the whole year. Hopefully all of us will and enjoy many more years. But we just don't know what is going to happen this year personally as a nation. What is God going to allow to come our way? What joys, what sorrows? We don't know, but we anticipate. And you've noticed that our world loves things that are new. Everybody does. In fact, the boys on Madison Avenue always have some new and improved gadget. You notice that? In fact, they banked on that this Christmas, that that would excite you. So they had the new and improved model car, the new and improved Razor. And as exciting as things are to get new, there's always a downside. Have you noticed that? It doesn't stay new very long. That brand new car, and it gets a dent in it. That brand new sweater gets a snag in it. That white shirt, that white outfit has that stain that you can't get out. The new toy, the batteries die out, or as usually what happens, the gadget breaks the day after the warranty is up. But God is in the business of giving new things as well. We have a new birth, the Bible tells us, through faith in Christ. A new nature He gives us when we come to Him. A new heart, a new hope. And eventually, when this earth is all over, we have a new home. The batteries won't wear out, it won't snag. 
It's an eternal guarantee that will never fade away. You could all sum it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now look ahead of you this morning. You've got a new year. The cement is still wet. It hasn't hardened. It's not over. You can form habits and patterns today by choices that you make. As often you've heard the axiom, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. We make choices now that shape and frame our future. And so I've had you turn to Philippians this morning, chapter 3. The name of the message is Four Words for the New Year. We're going to look at a few verses and sum them up by four great principles or four words that hopefully will frame your new year. Let's begin in verse 10, where the Apostle says, "...that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me." Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if there is anything, or if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. The first word, to sum up these principles, the first word for the new year is the word dissatisfaction. That might sound like an odd word to begin a year with, but nevertheless, it's here. Dissatisfaction. This is what I mean. Paul has been looking back over his life. In the first few verses of this chapter, he says, Okay, I was religious, I was Jewish, I was a Pharisee, I was zealous. I had all of these things going for me. I didn't know Christ yet. But all of my background, all of my pedigree that I had, he comes to a point and he says in verse 7, What things were gained to me, I have counted lost for Christ. And then he starts talking about his fervent desire to become a mature believer, to have an intimate, burning, living relationship with his God. He said, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now here's his heart's cry, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, that's what I want out of life. That is my new goal. My aspiration is to have an intimate, personal relationship with this God. So much so that I experience His power that even in times of suffering, I experience His power. Now those are high goals. 
But the thing I want you to notice is verse 12. He says, I haven't made it yet. He has a dissatisfaction about where he's at when he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. The beginning of verse 13 continues that thought. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Now this is the confession of a man who has walked with God for now, when he writes this, almost 30 years. And after 30 years, this great apostle says, this is what I want, but I haven't made it yet. Now if anyone would be a person that we would say, he has arrived. It'd be Paul, wouldn't it? Think how many people, countless people he's led to Christ. How many churches he started around Turkey and Asia Minor and so many places that he went. And he wrote some of the books of the Bible. I mean, he has arrived, he has attained, but even Paul says, no, I haven't. I still see there's room for me to grow. There's places for me to go in my relationship with God. I haven't made it. I'm not that mature. Yes, I've walked with Him 30 years. But he admits here, I have not attained, nor am I perfected. Now, this is a healthy dissatisfaction. A deep-seated discontent for the status quo. And I would say that is an essential element in growth. Anytime you reach a plateau and you rest on your laurels, you say, I'm spiritual enough, I've read the Bible enough, I've grown enough, you are doomed for status quo, for stagnation. Here's a man, an apostle who's walked 30 years, who said, I have still room to grow as a Christian. Now, I've got to say that I find a common thread among mature Christians, and that's the absence of presumption. Most of those who are very mature don't admit to it readily. You never see mature Christians saying, by the way, I am a mature Christian. I just wanted you to know that, that someday you might be as spiritual as I am. I remember as a fledgling young believer looking up to people who were really old in the faith, five years as Christians. Then I'd meet someone who'd been a Christian 10 years and 20, and I remember meeting people who were 30 and 40 years walking with the Lord, and I thought, man, they've arrived. Yet when I talked to them, they would say, I haven't arrived. There's so much I'm learning. There's so much that I have to grow. In fact, in the Bible, I find that the people who are the most spiritual recognize their sinfulness. Paul said he was the chiefest of sinners. He wasn't resting on any of his laurels. There's an old uh, Danish sculptor, world-famous guy, who made many statues. And he was asked one time, what is your best work of art? What is your favorite statue? The best one you've ever created. His answer was always, the next one. What's your best statue? The next one. He never rested on any of the works that he made. He always saw that there was room for improvement. There's an old saying that speaks truth to our hearts. It says, The devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of a sleeping saint. And there's a lot of sleeping saints who, just in spiritual lethargy, settle back, thinking, I don't need to grow any further, and settle into the status quo. Now, why are people self-satisfied sometimes? This is what I think. I think as Christians, as we're walking down this pathway, following Christ, there's a lot of people walking with us. And sometimes when we look around on the pathway, 
we see others who aren't making as much progress as we are. You know, we kind of pass them by on the path. Hey, how you doing? I passed them up. I'm growing. And we become self-satisfied because we have spotted a few stragglers and we inwardly think, you know, I am a little more mature than those people. We start to slow down ourselves. I'm more spiritual than that person. Funny, I've heard that somewhere before. Oh yes, it was the Pharisee in Luke 18 who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. Thank you, God. Jesus said he walked away and he was not justified. Had Paul compared himself with people on the path, he could have found a lot of people who weren't as mature as he was. Who could match Paul? And that would have caused him to slack off a little bit. He had a deep-seated dissatisfaction for the status quo. That's the first word for the new year. The second word is determination. It follows on the heels of the same thought in verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Notice the phrase, but I press on. But I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus had also laid hold of me. Look down at verse 14. Same thought, same word. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word press means to pursue something continually, to never let up. It's a runner's term. In fact, this whole paragraph is couched in marathon language. I think Paul was a sports fanatic because he often drew the analogies from the sports world. And he's picturing a runner streaking down the track, pursuing something, not letting up. I press. It's also interesting, by way of comparison, that this is the exact same word that he used in verse 6 for persecute. Same exact Greek word. Look back at verse 6. He talks about his past life and how spiritual, how religious he was. In verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You know what that means? I was so zealous a Jew that I was willing to show how zealous and spiritual I was by persecuting those who were Christians who had left the Jewish religion, who had defected, I would persecute them. That's how much I was into my religion. The same word, press, persecute, is the same word. The point he's making is this. The same energy I used in serving the devil by persecuting the church, I now expend that energy to serve the Lord. I serve as much as I sinned. Now, this is important. We hear testimonies from time to time. People draw black pictures of where they used to come from before they came to Christ. And they often try to embellish their testimony, the bad part. I was a thief and a drunk and a drug addict and a murderer. And, and we go, wow, ooh, ah. And then I got saved. Well, I hope then that you are serving the Lord with as much fervency as you were sinning against Him in the past. Paul said, I was, and I am. I press. There's a determination about his walk. Please don't misunderstand. He is not talking about self-effort here, apart from the power of Christ. In fact, he sums it up later on in chapter 4. Would you look with me? Verse 13 of chapter 4. I can do all things, notice, through Christ who strengthens me. Now let's balance this out. In this new year, avoid two extremes. On the one hand, 
There's the extreme of the person who is the activist who says, I must do all, I must work hard, I must work my way to heaven. That's the language of the religionist. The opposite extreme is also bad. Let go and let God. Now that's a clever statement. It just happens to be false. Both are true. God gives you the power. You, by your obedience and your determination that God allows you to have, cooperate with God. What would happen on a football team if the football players took one of those two extremes? What if on one hand the quarterback says, forget what the coach says, man, we'll do it ourselves. I got a better plan. Be pandemonium, be chaos. What if the football players on the other extreme, however, just said, well, let's just let go and let the coach. We're just going to sit on the field and we'll gaze toward the goal. And the coach will do it all. No, the coach will give you the orders, give you the plan, strategize you, fill you with the equipment, the power to do it, and cooperate with him. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. The Christian life is to be lived with vigor and diligence. And there's many comparisons in the Bible to this. Your Christian walk in Hebrews chapter 12 is compared to a race, like it is here. The writer in that chapter says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So it's compared to a race. Paul writes to Timothy and compares our Christian experience to a fight. When he says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, he likens the Christian life to a wrestling match. These are all idioms that speak of diligence and determination. You might say determination is like a stamp. It sticks to one thing till it gets there. Instead of saying, oh, I've tried the Christian life, and it was good for a while, but it got hard. God didn't give me what I wanted, and I picked up my football and went home. Do you know people like that? They've started well on the racetrack. It's got a little bit tough. They become like the parable that Jesus spoke about. When he said, the seed that was sown on the soil that had no root in himself but endures only for a while. And when tribulation arises, he stumbles. Second word is determination, then. Edison, it is reported, tried 200 different substances when he was trying to invent a light bulb. 200 different things for filaments. And they didn't work. One of his colleagues says, you have failed. You've tried 200 things and you have failed. He said, nonsense. I have discovered 200 things that won't work. And he went on and pressed forward and was determined. And we have light bulbs all around us today. Determination. That's the second word. The third word for the new year is found also in verse 13. It's the word discrimination. I'm summing, obviously, all these principles up with D words so that you can remember them. Dissatisfaction presses you forward. Determination, I press on. Discrimination. This is what I mean. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. You can stop right there. 
One of the secrets of Paul's success is that he narrowed down his focus. He didn't say, brethren, I want you to know, there's 150,000 things that I do. There's one thing that I do. In other words, I have a spiritual goal. That's my one thing. And that's what I'm pressing after. Again, this is the language of the athlete, the runner, who as an athlete will narrow down his focus, concentrate on one thing, and succeed. Have you noticed that there are few athletes that are really proficient at more than one thing? Most athletes are good at one discipline. Now, there's some who can cross-train and be okay at this and be okay at that, but look at Michael Jordan. Is he a good basketball player? Oh, he's great. I mean, there's shoes named after him, and there's all sorts, and he's awesome. Now, is he a great baseball player? Well, he's okay. But he'll never be in baseball what he was in basketball. Because for all those years, he concentrated on one thing, or like a physician. Instead of general practice anymore, physicians will specialize. They'll intern in one particular discipline, pediatrics, geriatrics, internal medicine, or whatever. And they'll narrow their focus. And this idea of one thing is important to the Christian as well. Jesus talked about having a single heart and a single eye. David in the psalm said, There's one thing that I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. There was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, I've kept all these things from my youth. And Jesus said, There's one thing that you lack. And that's the most important thing. There was Martha, who was working so hard while Mary was sitting at his feet. And Jesus said, Martha, one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen the better part. If you want to be burnt out in 95, you want to be frazzled? Do it all. Cram, pack your schedule with every conceivable thing. Be a jack of all trades and a master of none. Say yes to everything. You want a great year? Narrow your focus. Pray, wait, evaluate. When things come your way, judge them. Ask yourself, does this fit my gifts that God has given me? Does this fit the calling that God has given me? And evaluate by those things. There's a couple of scriptures in the Bible that speak to this. Nehemiah was a great one for that. I admire him for his narrowness of focus. Nehemiah, you remember, came to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And here he is up there on the walls, working away. And the Bible tells us in the book of Nehemiah that two messengers, Sanballat and Geshem, came and they said, Nehemiah, let's come together. We need to have a meeting and meet out on the plain of Ono. And he said, oh no. <laughs> Actually, he said these words. His reply was, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times and I answered them in the same manner. I like that. This is important, Nehemiah. We've got to see you. Nope. I'm doing a great work. I'm not going to leave this work that God has called me to do and talk to you right now. Acts chapter 6 is another prime example. The church was growing and the Hebrews and the Greeks started having conflict and they brought the apostles in and the apostles' answer is classic. He said, what are you looking at us for? This is paraphrased a little bit. We're not going to leave the word of God to serve tables. You choose seven men among yourselves, and we'll appoint them over this business. But we will continually give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They narrowed down their focus. 
One of your greatest enemies this year will be to chase distractions. I'm not saying don't be open for God to interrupt you, but be careful. Those things can be thieves. We can major on the minors. Billy Graham is somebody who's always kept his focus. I've noticed that through the years. He preaches the gospel. He's been asked on several occasions to do a lot of other things. He's had 22 offers from 22 different cities to build Christian college and university. With his name on it, they would give him the land free, they would build it free, but they wanted his involvement. Each time he said this, I believe it would be a great diversion from my preaching and worldwide crusade ministry. He said no to it. I suggest this year, right off the bat, you make a priority list. What's really important? What things or thing will you focus on? How about a list like more time with God, more time with my family, time reaching out to the poor, getting involved somehow in world missions. Just kind of keep a small little list and cap it off. Cap off your involvements. The fourth word and the final word is found in verse 13 and 14. It's the word direction. At least I've given that for this study. Direction. You know, you want to have a, a dissatisfaction that moves you on and a determination and you want to discriminate, but you want to make sure you're going in the right direction with all that energy. And so Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind. Don't go back. Reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now here's a great principle for Christian living. And it's a principle that many Christians override and neglect. Instead of forgetting the past, they live in the past. They dwell on it. The past affects them. Here it says, forgetting those things which are behind. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that somehow we fail to remember them? Now the word forget here means to not let the past affect you like it used to affect you. Not have the same grip on you anymore. Example. God says, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Now, does that mean that God has a memory lapse? No, it means that God won't treat you the same or let your past sins affect you the same. His standing, your standing with Him won't be affected any longer. He won't hold your sin against you. That's what it means. Now, your past can never change. But your response to it can change. You can let your past be a guidepost. But for some of you, it's a hitching post. You're right there and you stay right there. And you've come to a screeching halt in your progress with God. You're constantly looking back to that time you failed. Oh, but if only I would have done it differently. I'm such a failure. Others of you are looking back Instead of looking ahead, but you're resting on your past victories. You're resting on your laurels. Yeah. And I remember the time I walked with God and had a relationship. Oh, and you know, I, I was really used by God once, you know. What are you doing now? Are you just looking back or are you pressing forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? There's a lot of people. Moreover, there's a lot of movements and denominations that always look back to what God did 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200 years ago instead of what God is doing now and wants to do through you this year. Now, what would happen to a runner if he thought like that? What if he's going down the track looking back? Bam! He'd trip over somebody, he'd fall off a curve, he'd run into the bleachers. 
Now you've got to look ahead at your goal. The past is gone. Have you brought your past before God? Ask Him to cleanse and forgive it? Then move on. Move on. There's a man that was walking outside of a small ship as it was going in the sea, and he walked out on the rail, and he held his hand to the rail, and he looked up, and he saw this ominous cloud in the sky. A storm, he thought, was approaching. Lightning came from that cloud, and he had that frightened look on his face. The captain came out, noticed the guy's look, and kind of figured out what was happening. And he said, Oh, are you scared because of that storm? Well, if so, you can relax, because the storm has already passed, and it can do us no harm. He thought it was coming. The captain knew it was going in the other direction. Your past is past. It's over. It can do you no harm. But don't live in it any longer. Learn from it, but then move on. 